A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. horror films and other pulp fiction. Today we take a look at Ridley Scott's classic horror sci-fi film, Alien. This is a movie that has it all. The tension of being separated from home, corporate greed, bloodthirsty aliens, and fighting in tiny underwear. With me, as always, <laughs> is Dr. Anthony Ladon. Uh, very nice. Well, let's just get into this. Let's get into this thing. Okay. Much like the film, the suspense is killing me here. <laughs> uh, Steve, as you know, we are covering Alien today. Yes. Are you prepared for this? I am prepared. I mean, the, to the degree that I've I've watched the movie very recently, yes. In terms of like. You know, am I prepared for what may transpire from this conversation? I mean, who could be? Well, the first question I have is, what is your relationship to this franchise? Um, late adopter, similar to what we've talked about with Jaws. I think this may be my second time watching Alien all the way through. I have only up until maybe earlier this year seen the movie Aliens. Really? Wow. Yes. Um, in fact, I think the first alien movie I ever saw was Alien 3. I mean, I understood the notion of alien, had never seen the original alien, nor had I seen aliens, obviously. And, uh, we all got very high. I fell asleep very early. And in I Alien woke up 3? In Alien 3. And I woke up to the final scene. I won't spoil it because I don't want to spoil a movie that's probably like 30 years old. Yeah, 30 years old. Well, for Game of Thrones fans, famously, Charles Dance is in Aliens 3. Do you remember? Do you remember that part? Um, did he show up during the time when I was asleep? Uh, either asleep or high. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's easy. That was both in most cases. <laughs> I, know, uh, I know what Charles... S. S. Dutton, am I correct in that? Uh, from TV shows Rock, R-O-C, isn't it? You got me on okay. that one. Well, that was good. I just wanted to, I had to do something to, to take your Charles Dance knowledge down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me tell you my history here. As you know, I was not a huge fan of horror films mm -hmm. growing up. But I had seen Aliens, plural. Mm-hmm. Because I heard someone say it may be the best action film ever made. And, you know, this might have been in the 90s or whatever. But um, I thought, well, I, I should probably see this movie. So I had seen Aliens, plural. And in my mind, because my memory is faulty, Steve, mm -hmm. I Most had convinced are, myself that I had seen Alien. I had not seen Alien until very recently. Okay. So I had thought, yeah, of course, Alien's awesome. I love Alien. And then I, you know, earlier this year, I thought oh, I should I should revisit Alien. And I realized I have not seen this movie. <laughs> because I do not remember Ian Holm in this movie. 
Right. Yeah, Alien considered horror. Everything within the sci everything under the sci-fi umbrella, right? Uh, whereas Alien is considered horror mm-hmm. and Aliens is considered action. Interesting, yeah. Because you could easily make a case that Aliens is horror as well. It, yeah, I think it'd be probably a horror action. But I think I think if you were if you were gonna do the hierarchy, I think action action mm-hmm. more than like if you know how like if you have a wheated bourbon uh, mm-hmm. for it to be a bourbon, it still must be at least fifty one percent corn. But to be calling it wheated, it has to have your next highest mash bill being uh, wheat. So this is mm-hmm. a uh, maybe the question is is this a horrored action or is this an actioned horror? Like what would you consider it? I would put Aliens at probably fifty one percent action. Well, let's start with Alien because that's the one we're covering. So, well, that makes that sense. It makes sense in... to talk about the movie that we're actually here to talk about. I mean, that is that that's why you're running lead on this. I feel like I'm doing play by play for a game we're not watching. <laughs> the way that this was marketed was absolutely a horror. This is 1979. We had seen a few space operas, you know. The, 1968 was 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we the first Star Wars was in the wild. Then they marketed this film as Jaws in Space. And the trailer for this film famously said it was just alien and the subtitle was in space. No one can hear you scream. So yeah. to me, that means you're going to show me a horror flick. And I don't right. think that this movie disappoints as a horror flick. No, not at all. Now, Aliens, the second one, absolutely certainly has some action aspects to it. And I'm thinking specifically of the final scene or the final fight scene or whatever, Mm -hmm. which maybe we shouldn't spoil. But, I mean, certainly has that feel to it. How respectful Um, are we that we don't want to spoil movies that are this old? I know. I know. You know what? We're quite something. You you and I? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so my only other anecdote about my relationship with the franchise is that a few years back, I was on the airplane, and I decided to watch Prometheus. Uh-huh. And I started watching that film on the plane. I don't know if you've ever watched a film on a plane, Steve, but it's a different kind of experience. Mm-hmm. It's never the same. It's never, it's never optimal. I don't think you ever want to watch a movie for the first time on a plane. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm watching this on the plane, and I'm thinking, this is... This is a bad ripoff of Alien. <laughs> Not realizing that maybe Not there was an intentional connection. It is part of canon. Right. So, uh, and I and I did not know that, and I was just thinking, these these assholes are just ripping off Alien. <laughs> even they're even taking the director's <laughs> name. <laughs> so judgy, just so judgy about it. <laughs> Uh, all right, Steve. Do you have an elevator pitch for this movie? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, so the what the Jaws in space was probably a really apt. Like, and give credit to Jaws, right? Because like we talked about this, is just everything that happens anywhere is Jaws in. And same thing where like Die Hard, Die Hard was that way too. Where all of a sudden it was like you know Speed was Die Hard on a on a bus. <laughs> sure, right. Under Siege was like Die Hard in a submarine. Mm-hmm. Die Hard Two was Die Hard in a worse movie. <laughs> so for alien i mean it's it's uh i mean my elevator pitch would probably be people you don't care about in an awful situation <laughs> people, people you don't care about in an awful situation yeah is this because you're a dog guy and you don't like cats is that is that what this I, is I, I don't know if it's my relationship with tom scarrett <laughs> I love Tom Skerritt. How do you not like Tom Skerritt? I, I don't dislike Tom Skerritt, but I, I don't know that I've ever been moved by Tom Skerritt. Oh, I, I'm I'm a big River Runs Through It fan. Oh, okay. See, I, to me, Tom Skerritt is uh, is which is, is the anti action <laughs> movie. I don't know if yeah, you've ever it, seen right. River Runs Through It, but it is as boring as it sounds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Basically, a river is going to do what a river is going to do. It's going to be called <laughs> Watching the Current. Um, Tom Skerritt is like the Bob Seger of acting, like okay. uh, which if if it shows up, cool. I'm I'm probably in. Um, but like, let's say you're doing a music festival, mm-hmm. and 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 Bob <laughs> Seger is like the final act. 
that, that's probably not a great music festival. But if Bob Seger is like middle, mm-hmm. that's, you might be into something here. And I feel like when Scara is like the lead guy, yeah, I'm like, all right, I, I'm, I'm here for something else. Okay, I'm gonna push back on you. Okay, are you ready for this? Are you ready? Are you sure. ready for this? I, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that was rhetorical. <laughs> It's brilliant to make him the fall lead guy because he's not the lead guy. Sigourney well, Weaver sure. is the lead guy. And to put Tom Skerritt in that role, he's the perfect guy for that role because you're thinking, well, they, they probably could have chosen a better actor to play the lead guy. But he's just believable enough to think, yeah, why not? Why not Tom Skerritt? And then when you realize about 20 minutes into the movie – oh, no, Sigourney Weaver is absolutely the lead guy in this, then you're happy to dismiss Tom Skerritt at that point. Whereas if you would have brought in, uh, you know, sort of a heavy hitter for that part, that transition to Sigourney Weaver would have felt a little different. Well, so let me bring, so let me, let, here's my retort. Uh-huh. Um, in 1979... Yeah. Wait, wait, I'm not ready for it. Get, get me uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, my bad. I did not I did not try to get you prepped. Okay. All right. I'm ready. In nineteen seventy nine, isn't Scarrett bigger a bigger deal than uh, Sigourney Weaver? Yeah, probably. I mean I don't know their filmography, but I think that that's one of the great tricks that this movie plays is that this is going to be a female led horror flick. And you would never know it within the first 20 minutes. And so Tom Skerritt is a really nice sort of magician's, uh, what do you call it when a magician like shows you one hand and then does something with the other? Sleight of hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So Tom Skerritt is a really good sleight of hand. So, well, that, that may be the case, but if this is a true horror flick, this actually falls right in line with the trope, right? Tom Skerritt's maybe the, the police officer that shows up on the scene and is, uh, you're expecting to be the hero, but really the final girl is um, going to be the one that has to eventually dispatch the creature or the madman or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in many ways, it, and so that's kind of, it does feel uh, prototypically horrific or horror in that, in that regard. Maybe I'm judging a little too harshly about like people I don't care about, but I mean like it. They're all. It, it is. It's interesting because it does feel like you just you just kind of enter their world, right? And I think that's intentional. It's not like we've had a lot of backstory. We get enough. We get enough that uh, idea that the that the grunts on the are feeling like they're not getting their their due yeah. Um, yeah. because uh, Harry Dean Stanton won't shut up about it, um, <laughs> like at all. Like at some point, I think you just got to just just let's deal with the like, who are you? Who are you talking to about this? <laughs> like, I, mean, I think this is more of a Parker thing. I mean, maybe maybe the uh, the the Brett character is sort of behind it, but it's the Parker character that keeps on talking about it. Uh, no, because I think even at one point they're down there in the like the next time after they talk about it during the uh, after they they're in their little galley that they go down into the whatever. And uh, and he's just still going on about it. And I think it's like the other guy even went to stop talking about it. He was talking about something else. And and uh, yeah, no, I guess you're right. The Harry Dean Stanton character is absolutely behind the whole uh, I don't know labor dispute. But I feel like Parker's the mouthpiece for it. But I do. I want to talk about that part of it too because I really enjoyed that twist. So, you know, we talked about some of these other films that had been put out. You know, we have 2001, you know, the the great, you know, exploration, but either exploration with what AI can do or exploration with uh, what, what we can find out in space and what we might find out about ourselves in space. You have Jaws where it's like, let's just, let's save human life. You know, like that's the, the absolute motivation of the characters, like we can't let this monster eat innocent people. You know, Star Wars is like the, the key motivation for these characters is let's do right by our friends. Mm-hmm. What's the primary motivation for this crew? It is to make money. This is a, get the job done. It is capitalist driven. They have to uh, they have to absolutely they have to abide by their contract. 
And that's the thing that gets them into trouble. They want better bonuses, but they absolutely have to abide by that contract. And so the motivating factor in itself is part of the horror flick. And I, and I enjoyed that part. Right. And the whole, the whole detour, which really, I mean, you don't get a sense that anybody would have been on board with it. Like everyone's reluctant about it, but because their paycheck is essentially at stake. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so that is interesting, right? So I mean, that, that is, that is a good twist in the sense that these aren't heroes because they're heroic. They're, they're in this situation uh, because that's, that's the task that was handed to them. And I and, think this goes back to your elevator pitch, right? So why do we care about these people? I mean, we we know why we care about the people in Star Wars, right? Because they care about each other and they're likable people. You know, they they want to save the galaxy. And we know why we care about the people in Jaws because they're they're vulnerable. They're they're like they're raw humanity. These people, these people are they're motivated by money. So why do we care about them at all? And I think, I mean, I think I care about a few of these guys more than others. I mean, absolutely, I absolutely care about Sigourney Weaver by the end of the film, or else it wouldn't work. Are you sure. saying you don't even care about Sigourney Weaver? I'm not saying I don't care about Sigourney Weaver. I'm just, I, I guess, when I say don't care about, what I mean is these are people that you wouldn't care about. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. doesn't mean that we don't care about them in this in this instance, mm-hmm. because ultimately, this would be like if this was. Not in space. And they're not was, friends. They're not a. They're not a family. This could they're be an co-workers office. that like are tolerating each other. Right? It could be an office where they're like, yeah, we're here for the weekend. We've got to do this other task. I just got this instructions that if we want to get our yeah, if we want to get our bonus, we got to go and go up into the you know to the attic and we got to look for some files. Oh, this is just a clerical thing. This is ridiculous. And then they go up there and they encounter some sort of creature. Which, by the way, I just wrote a movie. <laughs> uh, all right. So part of the reason I care about Sigourney Weaver is uh, is the cat. It's the cat. All right. Put a pin in that. I, I'm going to come back to that. You, you do your thing, and I'm going to tell you why the cat may be a problem. <laughs> okay. All right. I think that there is a problem, and I think that you've got your finger on the pulse of the problem. And that is we need a reason to care about these people because they're motivated by money. They don't really like each other. So why are we, you know, why do we, they're, they're being commanded by some sort of AI thing called mother. Right. So it's not even their leader is sort of this soulless machine. Why do we care about these people? And the answer is maybe we don't, but by the end, Sigourney Weaver has to show her humanity in some way and her care for the cat is how they get me to care for her. Mm -hmm. I'm done. All right. I'm done. I'm all done. Uh, The issue with the cat, it seems incongruous to me that somebody who was willing to let a coworker person die for the greater good of maintaining quarantine yeah yeah yes would be like oh there's a cat loose where there's an alien loose Mm -hmm. i should probably jeopardize the escape to go get that cat Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's that scene could work a whole lot better in a movie that was different prior to that Okay, I'm gonna because so so I mean I understand I understand the I understand the necessity of the cat mm-hmm. in 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 the grander scheme of like you said there's a humanization because she's been fairly cold and and but I don't know that she's had a relationship with this cat I mean the cat's main purpose has been to just for jump scares up until this point and uh, I don't think so I think she pets the cat a few times when they're eating the cat's on the table like sitting right next to her so you think she can't deal with people as well as she can deal with cats it's very well that very well could be but here's the other thing about this that I feel like there's a transition in the movie that goes from protocol to like total chaos so early on everything's about protocol that you know they they're woken up because the the, the AI mother wants them to go explore this planet 
And they are, the big question is like, look, there's a contract. You're not going to get a better bonus. You're going to have to read your contract. If you don't go to the down of the planet, you're not going to get your paycheck. You got to read the contract. Sigourney Weaver, Weaver is not supposed to let the you know the guy in because of contamination. She's like going by protocol. Everything at that point is protocol, 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 and everyone sort of has their their duty. They've got this hierarchy of rank. And then what happens is that Ash decides he's going to break protocol and he's going to let the contaminated guy in. And at that point, so Courtney Weaver's kind of like kicking against goads. She's like, hey, what about protocol? And Tom Scarrett's like, eh, come on, come on, come on. At that point, everything goes to chaos and no one really knows what they're supposed to do. And then, of course, the chaos presents itself in another way with the actual alien on board. At that point, it becomes less about protocol and more about just holding back the chaos. And so when Sigourney Weaver goes to get the cat, it's because the rules have changed. That's my point. The rules have changed. Yes. So you so you think she's, she's a letter of the law, not the intent of the law. I think that earlier in the movie, she was letter of the law. She wanted to follow the rules. And then when everything else around her, when everyone else around her kind of like throws the the rules against the wall and it kind of shatters, she has to figure out how to hold back the chaos. Okay. I just feel like that's fine. But then you just saw that this alien lays eggs into in, into Kane. Yeah, that's right. Do you what you don't know you have the cat can't tell you what its interaction with this alien has been. You don't know anything about this alien. Uh you don't get the cat. I it's just, it seems problematic to me. I I mean I can I can and I'm right there with you. I was like, "Oh, well this is kind of a moment where it's like, look, this is a crisis moment. Um mm-hmm. she she's on the verge of being alone. Maybe the idea like she doesn't want to leave it. Now she doesn't want to leave anyone behind. That's a whole different, you know, like that like that could be a a a turning point for this character, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't work for me. Um, it's probably the only thing that really doesn't work for me. Cause I, um, it, well, there's a couple things, uh, that don't work for me. This is a very obnoxious sounding movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, before we go there, I want to say one more thing about the cat. I want to say one more thing about the cat. I want to say that there's a lot of motherhood themes in this movie mm-hmm. and with the, with the uh, AI called mother perchance. Well, I'm just saying that that's the way it starts, but you can name like 50 others. And it, it was very conscious. And what they wanted to do where Ian Holm looks like he's spitting up after breastfeeding. After he gets hit with the <laughs> fire extinguisher. Indeed. Indeed. That's part of it. I mean, the, what they were trying to do with this film was they were trying to make 1975 men who are very insecure about their masculinity feel vulnerable deep down, you know, deep down. They were, they were basically using feminine images to scare men in 1979. So I think that there's something about Sigourney Weaver's relationship to the cat that's important in that case. But if you don't like that, consider this. It might be a whole six weeks until she gets to eat again. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 the old uh, proverb, right? Uh, give a man a cat, feed him for a night. Teach a man the cat, feed him for a lifetime. <laughs> All right. So tell me about the music here. Well, the music is probably the least of my. This movie is relentless for a good chunk of this film about just with the beeps and the blurps and and the alarms. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. And I, and and I think it's intentional, right? But it's 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 unsettling, almost to a point where, uh, like, I was getting agitated. Well, I think that was the point, right? But I it, but it, it just like for anything, like not like in scenes where like, oh, this is going to be dramatic. Where it's just like, oh, there's just they're just there, and it's just like, rah, 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 rah. just it's it's. <laughs> <laughs> for a movie that implies, you know, a certain amount of well, in space, no one can hear you scream. Like, well, I can hear everything. <laughs> I, in fact, I hear too much. I think the reason why no one can hear you scream is not because space is so vast and empty, but it's because there's so much other freaking noise. <laughs> 
it wasn't enough to make well, me go, okay, oh, so Keep in mind, I like this movie. I think this movie is very effective. I think it holds up really well. I think um, the alien is is fantastic to look at. Um, I think I think I, I I think the big reveal at the end, where you find out that the reason why Sigourney Weaver is is so on edge is not so much because she's rigid and by the book. It's because her underwear has got to be incredibly uncomfortable the entire journey. Yeah, uh, she's she's wearing like a four year old's underwear. The the Nostromo issued underpants are an app that that look. I understand you're trying to you're trying to cut costs, but good lord. <laughs> All right, so like uh, so was she like when they first started the journey? I can ass- I assume she was seven, <laughs> and then when she cryogenically woke up as an adult person, I mean <laughs> Tom Hanks underwear in big fit better. <laughs> all right so i think i think that you've already hinted at this but uh let's let's talk about does the movie hold up oh yeah i think so i mean here's here's the thing about this is that i think that part of the appreciation for this movie is that you know that it had an impact in that time and place and its dna gets imprinted on so many other movies right and like the chest burster, mm-hmm. it's just totally iconic. And yet, the chest burster, if you look at the chest burster, it runs away. <laughs> That's my favorite part. It's it a just... little bit like, you know, I don't know, like Grover when he's in his super Grover outfit <laughs> running away. <laughs> I mean, he is, that thing is full on uh, like one of those old race car tracks we used to have. The Tyco? Yeah, he's just gone. Straight gone. <laughs> yeah, I mean as far as as far as effects go, that's probably that's gotta be like the worst effect in the whole movie. It's the most iconic thing about the movie though. But you like you could have like imagine that scene pops out of the chest and then you just hear it scurry away and they're looking for it. It's perfectly fine. But that thing where it's just running towards you, like but as as straight as can be, like it's just in one pose. It's just when I watch my children play with action figures, you know, and they just don't even try to make the legs move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty great scene. It's an iconic scene. And well, the scene lead, up until that moment, I mean, the acting that goes on in that sequence is really impressive. Famously, I, I mean, this has been you, this is sort of uh, internet lore, but famously. Ridley Scott did not tell the actors what was going to happen as far as the the, the actual effects. And mm. so when the when the chestburster came out of the dummy's body or whatever, they were legitimately surprised. And I don't know why one of them at least didn't laugh because that thing <laughs> looked like a muppet. Yeah, with his little underbite. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean I can see watching it for the first time and and feeling like like horrified by it but I couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> yeah. Um so for me okay does it hold up? Yes and in the same way that Jaws holds up, you know, you you were mentioning in Jaws that you know you could see the hinge in the in the Jaws mouth or whatever. Right. For me, it was like, yeah, the chest burster is a little bit. Uh... I'll tell you what, though, that face sucker thing. Yeah, that's a it's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. That yeah, that thing. one. That's that's a that whole yeah that see that egg sequence. Yeah. Um, it got me. Like it still it was like just the whole the whole. I was, uh, like, there's a lot of the, like, what are you doing? You don't know, you know, like, why would you do that kind of a thing um, <laughs> that goes on in horror movies? Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, I I kind of I kind of understood. You know, it's like you're there, and it's like on one hand, I mean, you'd be terrified. But on the other hand, you're like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, there's kind of a, there's this sense of, cur- of like, genuine curiosity, and he looks at it, and... You know, he doesn't know what he's about to encounter. Now, for me, I assume everything I don't understand is trying to kill me. So I have a different approach than obviously this individual. <laughs> but 
but I thought that whole sequence was, and it was done so well when it like, and then the the edit as soon as it like jumps into his face and, and kind of takes him down. Mm-hmm. That whole sequence is really good, uh, and the chest bursting out scene that's really good to a point, right? So I mean, it does. That's your Jaws hinge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the entirety of they made the entire alien out of the Jaws hinge at that point. Right. I think that if you were completely shocked, let's say you're in the movie in 1979 and you're seeing that for the first time, you're completely shocked by that. that, So that whatever comes next, you're so disoriented. You're not going to be able to be a critic in the way that we are being critics of it. Well, and and if you recall what it was like to watch Star Wars in the theater when we were young, Mm -hmm. um, our expectation, without necessarily even thinking about it, our expectation for what effects on a movie screen could be, they were calibrated to a certain expectation, right? We didn't. Yeah, you put a guy in a garbage can and give him like Michelin Man legs. You're like, yeah, that's a robot. Right. I, we see I stop motion. We see stop motion Clash of the Titans scenes, and no one's yeah. like. Pfft. We were just like, that's what, that's that's it. That's a that's a scene. So, yeah, I think there's two things. Like I said, the the effectiveness of the scene prior to it, and probably the expectation of like, I don't think there were, there was that same degree of a critical eye. Whereas like now. Like, because I mean, Jurassic Park, you know, you look at Jurassic Park at the time and it was like, oh, what are my eyes even seeing? This is insane. These dinosaurs are there. You watch it now, even and even in like 4K and I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, they're a little flat, you know, it's the coloring's different, you know, it, you see that um, because also that's the advantage of, of a rewatch mm-hmm. is that you look at it now with a little bit more of a discerning eye and you lose some of the magic, right, of, the, of that first experience. My first thought when I saw the chestburster, yeah, he's kind of cute. Yeah, a little bit. I was thinking, I, I, I wonder who's cuter, E.T. or this chestburster? Well, and I thought about that a lot, actually. I was like, why is, is, why is he cute? Is he cute because he's small? And I liked the idea that, uh, I, I like to think that they intentionally made him a little cute because just regardless of creature, babies are always just a touch cuter. Yeah, they're yeah, they're they're, they're kind of an exaggerated version. Those little jaws um, with the the silver teeth. I mean, yeah, the idea that he's cute seems both authentic and contradictory. Like on one hand, I'm like, yeah, well, he's kind of cute. I like that. I like the idea. And then it's even more interesting the fact that oh, this thing is terrifying, and it's adorable. <laughs> All right, let's talk about how fast this thing grows up. Yeah, I'd like to see that thing's underwear. <laughs> this thing goes from Alvin and the Chipmunk to Harry and the Hendersons in like <laughs> a space of an hour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and as, as far as we're understanding the time, for sure. And we see we see like one of its molted skin. Yeah. And it was like it went from that to like, well, I guess I'm giant now. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the molted skin or whatever that Harry yeah, Dean Stanton the, picks up. The, yeah, when he finds the the alien condom, it's actually made of condoms. Yeah, so you were expecting it to be a little bigger, and then it's yeah, <laughs> then it's Dikembe Mutombo. <laughs> Who is this movie made for? Um, I think it's a general audience, right? I think it's a general adult audience because because I, I I think there's something. It doesn't feel so sci-fi. I mean, it is sci-fi, but like it doesn't feel so sci-fi that it, you're going to get caught up in the tactical side, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to what you were saying: is that hey, these are just they're they're workers, they're worker bees, essentially, right? I mean, they're on this ship, but like, and that makes them a little bit more relatable in the sense that I mean, you have a science officer uh, who who has, but they defer to him a lot, right? You don't really. He gets a little sciencey, but a lot of it's like, hey, that's why you're the science officer. And that kind of feels like that helps a kind of like the lay person be like, yeah, I wouldn't get it either. And don't explain it to me. Let that guy figure it out. Sure. Yeah. I think it's for people who enjoyed like 2001, Star Wars. They just thought, we need a space movie. And for some reason, space movies are selling. So let's do Jaws in Space. And I think think it was the right it was the exact right time for this particular movie because 2001 is glacially slow you know (laughs) talk about sci-fi i mean if you're not into sci-fi you are absolutely not gonna like that movie right and i i dislike that movie 
so much that it almost made me hate sci-fi. <laughs> okay, I loved it, of course, because I'm mm. a River Run Sewer kind of guy. And uh, and then, of course, you've got Star Wars on the other end of it, you know, which is sort of, it's more of an action. Fl- I mean, you, you could argue it, it's not sci-fi at all. It's it's fantasy, ac- uh, you know, fantasy, adventure probably, or something. Yeah, I think, I think fantasy is a really good way to put that because there is, it's sci-fi because it's in space and there's mm-hmm. robots and all that, but... Um, but it it does follow more of the fantasy ideals than it does. Um, yeah, I think, and I think maybe that's also maybe maybe that's part of the reason why um, the prequels aren't as well regarded. I mean, there's a few reasons, but maybe it dips its toe a little bit more into science fiction in the sense that it, by by it being more political, mm. by it trying to have some other sort of statement, it becomes less fantasy and more and more science fiction. And maybe that's sure. that's a maybe that's a jarring uh, part yeah. of. For the for the the audience that it had uh, cultivated, right? Well, w- regardless of that, this movie is like right in that sweet spot. Whereas if Star Wars was a little bit too action adventure for you, or a little bit too you know I don't know Disneyland for you, and two thousand one was a little bit too I don't know philosophical or something. This movie, I mean, this is the perfect space movie for this particular moment in film history. No, I think so. The other thing I want to talk about is the fact that when the alien gets into the escape pod, he's just lounging there. Is he stuck? <laughs> he's he's completely horizontal, and it looks like he's on a shelf. Yeah. And he's What's he not. Doing? He looks yeah, like what? he just needs a nap. Yeah, what's what's he doing? And then and then like she has to like go through a variety of things to get him to, to kind of to spook him, to get him out. <laughs> why, why is he just laying there? I, I don't know. I, don't I really mean, know. he and could be he, all tuckered out, I guess. Is he molting again? Maybe. I mean, maybe. I, I, who knows what his motivations are? It took him, but it's a little bit weird to see him be so aggressive, and then. Not at all. <laughs> right. Because he's like, it's he's Tom Skerritt. I mean, he reaches right at him. You know, picking up people, slamming slamming his second face into their face. And uh, and he's right there next to her. And he's just like, nah. It's like and he's haunting like, oh. her. She's like, well, I'm going to go get changed. And he's like, well, it's fine. I'm all tangled up in here anyway. I don't know what I was thinking. You know what? What was happening is it's not until she actually puts on clothes. That's when he gets upset. That's when. That's what this fired is the, him up. This is the thing. He is he's absolutely only going to attack bad fashion. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I maybe he was being respectful. He's like, look, I'm gonna give you a fighting chance. Look at this underwear. You can't. <laughs> but yeah, I don't I mean there's I don't I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, and yeah, that's that's. I'm glad you brought that up because I was a lot of times like, well, it's convenient that he's just laying down and kind of caught in whatever that was. Like, he actually had to go out of his way to hide in that. Dude, you, you've been fine up until this point. <laughs> the the mouth within a mouth is really cool. I, I I'm I'm gonna say that right away. But but why? The, but. Why does it look like a Pez dispenser? <laughs> it comes out so, yeah. I mean, it doesn't. I mean, it. Uh, every, it's interesting about the alien. It's like it feels a, and I think it's intentional. If I remember looking at some of the the artwork, but it feels like it's it's organic with a touch of 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 like metal, right? Yeah, it looks a little metal, but the teeth also look a little metally, right? And its blood is acid, so it does feel like. But its drool is not. That's true. Yeah, that's, yeah. Whatever. Whatever it is. Okay. Steve, is this movie better than a Ron Howard flick? Yes. Okay. I, I agree. What I is your a, Howard I, rating? I, I think it's a Howard plus three. Howard plus three. I'm going to go Howard plus five. Okay. That's I, fair. Uh, it, because of the place it occupies in movie history... I'm going to go, I'm going to give it even a couple notches above Howard plus three. I like it. I was genuinely grossed out by the face sucker. Yeah. To me, that, that was yeah. the scariest part of the, the film. No, I think that that's, and I, and I think that 
by creating a like they create a landscape they create a setting that um in and of itself is like it's it's what is it and i think and i think this is bears repeating like how you can really put together this sort of like capitalist venture it's just a job like this is the future and it's sort of uh it kind of takes some of the romance out of space and and sci-fi a little bit sure where yeah. it's like you know what? What would we do as a people if we had the ability to create these massive ships? And we would immediately to send galaxies? truckers to space. We would. We would find a way to come. You know, to make uh, commodity exchange. We would. Yeah. We would turn it into something profitable, and there would be people that worked in it in such a way that you know, it's like instead of it being these heroic fighter pilots and uh, these uh, space guardians, it's. Just yeah, I'm I I'm a mechanic that works on on this. It's like a, like a, like a cruise ship or something, you know. So it's uh it's so I think that that's that's kind of interesting how they demystified mm-hmm. space at, at the setting. Like the setting of it is it's just a job, but then they then they incorporate then what would be like sort of the magic of of sci-fi and space. Like there's an alien, right? There's a different creature, and and this is and then on top of it, it's one that's just it's it's hell bent on destruction and these people are not um they're not trained for this mm-hmm. right so it's so your thought would be well if you're in, in space fighting aliens you're probably trained to fight in space against aliens and the fact that these folks weren't and it was almost like the perfect kind of scenario to acquire a space alien because you're like look it'll get on board because these are people and they will let it on board most likely and look, we don't care if anybody comes back. We just want the ship to come back. So you, when you have it on autopilot and all that. And so I think that that's an interestingly different horrific notion than even the alien, right? It's the whatever plot was behind this, whether the alien was good, bad, or whatever, they didn't care. They, this was really just a way to get the alien. I mean, that part becomes like, that's the horror within the horror, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of parallels here with Star Trek, just the whole sort of like the bridge crew, you know, the different, you know, you got the engineers, you got the science officer, you got the captain, you got the arguments between the first officer and the captain. But it's almost like the anti Star Trek. It's like everything's dirty. Everything is kind of gross. These are like these humans have not figured out anything. It's not like they're beyond commerce. It's a vision of the future that's really dirty. Right. So I recently watched the director's cut of this movie. And I I liked it and there was a there was one major change at the end that I think improved the movie. So do you remember in Aliens when they find the humans that are basically being used as cocoons? Yeah. And I think one of the guys says kill me, you know, he wakes up and says kill me or something like that. Right. That Okay, so that basically that is a premise for the deleted scene that I saw in the director's cut. When she's in, she's about to escape, and when she leaves, she goes into this little cocoon area that the alien has set up, and you actually see Tom Skerritt in that cocoon. Uh, I don't know. He's still alive, basically. Interesting. And he's all he's been all cocooned up, and then he says uh, he says kill me, and she kills him with a blowtorch. And I thought, you know what, that might solve the cat problem because if she leaves because I don't know why uh, you know if she leaves to go do that to kill Tom Skerritt or to find him and kill him or whatever, it's not like she has to leave because of the cat. You could do that in a way where she thinks, well, maybe I could still save uh, Dallas. Like if he, you heard him call out or something. Something like that. She's she goes up go, there. Yeah. She goes he, up there, sees yeah. that. Now you know he, she's up there to save him, or at least potentially. He says, yeah. he says kill me. That's, that's always a really effective, gr- gross thing. Yeah. And she does, and then she goes back, and now the alien is taking a nap. Right. There we go. There you go. There you go right there. So, I don't know. I think Ridley Scott wanted to include that. And I don't think that a lot of fans think of that as canon. But uh, I I enjoyed I enjoyed the director's cut. Is that the only major difference that you can recall? It was the only one I found. And then I went online and someone pointed out that she's sort of more definitive on not letting 
the uh, the Kane character back into the mm. into the ship. Um, gotcha. But I I I felt like the theatrical cut was pretty adamant as well. Yeah, so, I thought, I mean, yeah, I would be curious to see what that looks. I I definitely thought that that was pretty clear. Yeah, I told. Uh, I think that they told that part of the story pretty well. She was the only one that wasn't going to do it, and they overrode her. You know, her instructions to do it. So, all right, one more little thing about this movie. I learned that um, this part, the, the Sigourney Weaver part, was originally meant for a male character. Was that right? And they decided to put her in the role, but they didn't change much of the lines. So I wonder, like, in retrospect, sort of Sigourney Weaver's um, Ripley in this world has become this, I don't know, feminist icon, kind of. Right. And I wonder if the guys who made this film were kind of feminist on accident. Mm. Like, you know, maybe maybe they, they sort of created something that was important but didn't know really what they were doing. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, again, like I would have, I would have assumed that they did that intentionally because they were following the horror trope, but, um, well, I mean, clearly they decided to do, to do all these motherhood themes throughout the film. And so maybe that's why they decided to actually make the main character a mother type. I could see why someone like Sigourney Weaver would have been important to bring on, uh, but then choosing not to change the lines at all. That's a, that's right. also a conscious choice. Huh. That is interesting. I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> I probably won't do anything with it. <laughs> Steve, we have one listener email, and I have a iTunes review to read. Okay. Okay. Should, what should we do first, listener email or iTunes review? Which is the worst thing. <laughs> all, all very positive. All huh. very positive. <laughs> all two things very positive. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll take it. All right. So, Steve, this is a simple two-line review. It says, hilarious. These two play off each other well. They say there's only one comedian, but... And there's an ellipsis here that's troubling to me. You, so, you, because there's a little bit of a, of a cliffhanger, uh-huh. you're, you're like one hand you would think, oh, maybe there's two comedians here. Is what he's really trying it could to get be at. Zero. Or, they say or they're saying there's one comedian, but I don't see one. <laughs> or it's even worse. It's should I be insulted that I've been demoted to comedian? I'm no longer an academic. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, you've I gone. Be... <laughs> you, you've spent the majority of your life chasing a, a PhD, and I uh, tell dick jokes. <laughs> and we, somehow we wound up in the same place. You know what? That's actually it would be. It would be. It would be way worse for you if it was like they say. There's only one doctor on this. <laughs> dot dot dot. You know, I think this person's spot on. I think that that's probably what happened. Like I, I, I pursued a PhD in vain. You told dick jokes. We wound up in the same place, and that should be a lesson to us all. Yeah, I mean, you, you think I lose money in comedy? <laughs> Try oh, getting a PhD. Oh, good night. I'm still paying for it. All right, so let and the me... good news is, at some point, your children will have to pay for it. They, they've already, <laughs> they've already paid. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, emotionally, for sure. <laughs> the distant father. That's lovely. That's always a wonderful narrative. All right, here we go. This is from Squirrel Killer 55. Oh. <laughs> this was Man. not sent to the cocoons of horror at Gmail. What, uh, sorry. Cocoons of horror.gmail at com. No. How do you say these things? <laughs> how, do, how does life work? Yeah, no, again? there is definite, there's definitely less than one doctor on this. <laughs> how does the world work again? www.net.gov. <laughs> 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 So this was not sent to cocoons of horror at gmail.com. That was that was decent, but Gmail for some reason had three syllables. 
Gmail. It was like it was like the Italian version. I, of Gmail. I a little bit of my paisan came out in that one. <laughs> hey, it's like a kunas of horror. <laughs> so Squirrel Killer fifty five asks. Yeah, Squirrel Killer fifty five. Be clear, <laughs> there's been fifty four Squirrel Killers prior. I think this person's probably Go- killed fifty four, <laughs> and fifty five <laughs> is aspirational. Oh, I see. So this is like the secret. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty He's sure. He's just sort of throwing it out in the universe. Pretty sure this is what Tim Lincecum did after his baseball career. <laughs> I, I just like the idea of trying to create the Gmail account. You're like, ah, I'm going to be Squirrel Killer at Gmail. Oh, already thinking. Already thinking. Ah, I'm going to be Squirrel Killer number one. God damn it. <laughs> Honey, what are you doing in there? This is normally the time that you, you spend killing squirrels. I just, I'm trying to set up online presence. <laughs> Uh, loving cocoons. Uh, what do we call avid cocoons of horror supporters like me? Cocoon head, uh, <laughs> cocoa heads, cocoonophiles. Also, can you speak to your scheduling plan for cocoons? Does it only exist alongside Perfect Stranger Things, or does it live beyond your coverage of that show once it runs its course? Please say it's the latter. I don't know. Do you, do you have any, any thoughts on this, Steve? Which which should we take first? Well, I like the idea of like maybe there's there's levels, right? There's levels of of your mm. fandom. So there's like like you could be in the chrysalis phase. Sure. Uh, <laughs> you could be larva. So like <laughs> yeah. f- like full supporters that listen to us as soon as it downloads. These people are butterflies or something like that. Yeah. See, that's the question, right? I mean, is uh. If you if you fully metamorphosized, are you? Is that because you were completely now part of the the team, or have you just moved on <laughs> when you're over it? <laughs> the butterflies are are all the the listeners that like according to our analytics listen for like less than five minutes. <laughs> we could do something, yeah. You know, cocoons, uh, you know, the the name cocoons of horror actually is a uh, an homage to. Famed 1990s boxer Peter McNeely. Yeah, Peter the Hurricane. He famously wrote poems about, uh, you know, how he was going to destroy people in the ring. Yeah. And he said that he was going to wrap you in his cocoon of horror. Yeah. One of my favorite moments is, make your pay-per-view plan soon, or I'll wrap you up in my cocoon. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the most bizarre threat uh, that I mean, like, and if it hadn't have been done, I mean, and I assume it's a threat because it also sounds super cozy. <laughs> well, like if it was elsewhere, it was cocoon of horror, but in that particular yeah. context, cocoon could be very gentle. Make your pay per view arrangement soon, because remember what happens when I wrap you in my cocoon. And keep laughing, keep laughing. It's real funny, huh? Well, I love the idea that like he was so confident that he was making cocoons of horror a thing that when he shortens it to just cocoon, like he's like, y- you know what I'm talking about. You know it's a cocoon of horror because I mean, come on. <laughs> so we could call our avid listeners like McNeelys, <laughs> and never reference it again. So if this goes on for several years, people have no idea why our listeners are called <laughs> the, the McNeelys. Yeah. You know, I think it's definitely worth uh, worth exploring because, I mean, as of this point, we know we have um, at least two fans. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> right. so, so to to not give them uh, a name would would be just a complete disservice to the tribe. So, Squirrel Killer fifty five and others, or and other, uh, go ahead and email us cocoonsofhorror at gmail dot com and give us your ideas for what avid listeners should what what moniker should they boast forth well given given the his his early adoption i mean i'm almost tempted to say look if you're a fan you're a squirrel killer <laughs> yeah we squirrel killer 56 is available as far as i know <laughs> yeah so send us send us your ideas for this uh, we would and and to the to the latter part of the question i i mean i the original thought was, okay, this is an offshoot from perfect stranger things where we can discuss some of the uh specific 
uh, inspirational moments or what what inspired uh, certain episodes of Stranger Things. Yeah. But I I think and as but it's, what I think is interesting is we've started to do this and we're not terribly far into uh, this this podcast in terms of where I think we want to go because we've got a running list of of films we would like to cover. Mm-hmm. I and I think I think not only does the Stranger Things you know seem like a good starting point to say okay well let's talk about these uh, films. But I think then then they beget something else, right? Like then we start to go, well, what maybe inspired this, or mm-hmm. what's another? You know, I mean, we have uh, we have reviews of things that maybe don't necessarily have a direct connection, but I think there's a certain timing, and there's a you know, I mean, for sure, when we talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula, I'm not sure that that has a whole lot of Stranger Things influence necessarily. Well, it does um, have Winona Ryder. It does have an owner rider, so I guess it, it's a whole thing. Is just how many degrees of separation can you make from uh, from yeah. our other podcast? I mean, I, no, that's but, actually but to, a good a good uh, point here. So, in, in direct answer to Squirrel Killer Fifty Five's question, I think that when we recorded our Bram Stoker's Dracula pod, my initial thought was, well, we'll need something to record when we're not paralleling Stranger Things. Um, that said. I do think that we ought to have seasons so we give ourselves a break. Um, so maybe every 10 episodes we take a little break. Um, Why? Where you got to be? I I, I got to kill some squirrels, man. This guy has inspired <laughs> me. Well, I mean, I, I'm just a multitasker. Um, I I don't know. I, I you know. Because I, when I started making a list, I was like, you know what? I don't know that it has anything to do with Stranger Things, but... Anthony and I don't talk about Gremlins 2, the new batch, at some point, then we're really doing our <laughs> listeners a disservice. Which I've never seen. I've never seen it. Oh, man. Uh, Gremlins 2 is the Godfather 2 of the Gremlins movies. <laughs> is that, is that, you're saying it's an Empire uh, New Hope situation. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Gremlins 2 is... Uh, it might be the greatest sequel ever made. <laughs> really? Wow. That's high praise. Well, I can't wait uh, to get yeah. to that one. Uh. <laughs> see? And see, already that, that answers the question. We're not going to just stop with our... I don't know that there's a Gremlins 2-inspired uh, moment in We may uh, just do a whole things. spinoff pod just on the Gremlins franchise. I mean, maybe maybe it's just movies that feature Hulk Hogan at any point. Because I think Hulk Hogan, outside of Mr. Nanny and No Holds Barred, I think he primarily is, like, he tends to show up in sequels. You know, so obviously Gremlins wait, wait, 2. Wait wait. wait, wait, wait. You're being serious. Hulk Hogan is in Gremlins 2? Oh, yeah. And uh, he's, of course, I think I, I believe I, he's in the it, the this. Three Ninjas Strike Back. Is that right? I believe he's, I don't think he's in the original Three Ninjas, uh-huh. but I believe he is in one. Of, and, of course, well, he's, he's in, in the sequel to Rocky, right? Rocky Three, yeah, as Thunderlips. <laughs> Thunderlips, that's that's tremendous. Yeah, things that we can do when Stranger Things is not happening. <laughs> so that's all I got today, Steve. So if you have a comment or question, cocoonsorhorror at gmail dot com. Please leave us a review on iTunes. It is the best way to help our visibility and. Give us something to talk about during this segment of the podcast. Can we call them Hulkamaniacs, maybe? Maybe that's the fans? It's no longer taken. <laughs> right? I think, it, I think it's out there, right? It's, it's, out, it's, it's public. I think he let the uh, trademark expire. Cocoonsahorror at gmail.com. Let us know how you feel about the prayers, training, and vitamins. In that order. That's <laughs> always in that order. <laughs>
Star. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the fourth be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>